We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. The Sporland Division of Parker Hannifin Corporation is sponsoring this podcast. Sporland is the leading manufacturer of HVAC and R components. Using quality materials and craftsmanship, Sporland maintains a commitment to innovation, manufacturing excellence, service, and support for its customers since 1934. The company is known for its catch-all filter dryers, thermostatic expansion valves, solenoid valves, pressure regulating valves, suction filters, electric valves, controllers, supermarket monitoring solutions, chemicals, smart service tools, ZoomLock Max Press to Connect, and ZoomLock Push, Push to Connect Refrigerant Fittings. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to Sporland.com. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. What are you, where are you, where are, you are you at home? Yeah, I'm at home this week. <clears throat> Actually, someone that works here asked me today if you were going to Albuquerque. Are you are you still going out there? I don't know. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Because every time I go there, it's not ready or it's worse off than when the last time we left. Are you doing? Are you doing? Are you still doing cutovers or are you, what are you doing this week? Service work? Uh, no, I'm doing clean up and playing hot potato and i am sorry my daughter's screaming in the background i can even hear it and then i'm doing a bunch of walkthroughs for gas conversions for 404 507 to 448 yeah i'm i'm in california this week we're restructuring some of the construction stuff so literally it, it looked you ever see that 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 meme of charlie day from it's always sunny where basically he has a whole bunch of stuff up and he's trying to pinpoint everything yeah that's that that's that's what we had going on Fuck. you what yeah hey brother i gotta i gotta take this Fuck. yeah so we're tonight we're gonna get started on since Kevin's doing the, the 404, 507 to HFO. We're going to get started with talking about that and how to basically how to prep for it. And well, no, are we doing prepping or are we just, are we just going to roll through it? We'll we'll do both. We'll roll through it. All right. Well, you want to start off by basically telling where you start off? Yeah. All right, guys, with, with doing this kind of work, 
like retrofits in general, everything is in the prep work being like super detailed on your scope, what the customer expects of you reading over what their scope is and then having your own kind of internal scope too. what, what you're going to do and what you're going to, how you're going to go about this and what your expectations are and how you're going to do this. Now I do a thorough site walk. Usually I'll spend a day, day and a half there just going through everything in the store. We're trying to find no, no, stone left unturned i'll go through everything like we did in the previous episode like i'm getting in cases under cases i'm trying to find any ball valves anywhere any solenoids anywhere anything that's hidden so i want to go through and try to find all the hidden stuff so as we're going through this we're going to try to find everything that's hidden so i'm going to go through and i'm going to look through log books i'm going to trace out piping i'm going to try to find all the little nooks and crannies where things get shoved then I'm going to start going through each rack individually and I'm going to start making out lists that everything needs changed. Now, when you're going from 404 to 507 to 448 or 449, you're not going to have that leak potential like you would from 22 for the ball valves specifically because you don't have that chlorine in there. Now, since that chlorine's not in there, you're not going to have that leak potential. With that being said, stuff still leaks. It does. And if you're, it's, it's my, my own thought process and everything else. Like if you're doing one of these jobs and you're taking the gas out and you're doing a gas changeover, everything's already there. The fitters are already on site. Just change the high side ball valves. For what it's going to cost to change the high side ball valves, you're eliminating leak potentials. And you're eliminating ball valves that probably don't hold. If the rack is older than 10 years old, let's be honest, those ball valves probably don't hold all the way. So why not just eliminate that right away? It's going to be more cost up front, a little more cost up front. But I'll tell you what, to do two or three ball valves here, two or three ball valves there, it's going to be way more expensive than just to do them all in one shot. So... I'm a big proponent of getting those ball valves out. If they're leaking at all, if there's any signs of them leaking, then I'm going to go through and I'm going to gut them all. And all the high side ball valves are coming out. At a bare minimum, the drop leg and discharge ball valves are getting changed. I am going to go ahead. No, I was going to say, don't, don't you typically, I mean, it should be bit out when you're doing that because even people, there's a misconception where, they're, they're like, oh, it's POE oil. You don't have to, you don't have to change anything over because you're going from POE to POE. But from the experience I've seen, like if they don't, if they don't at least try to attempt to put some kind of retrofit ball valve caps on there, they end up leaking like a damn sieve. Yeah, it's been 50-50. I've seen them where they leak and when they don't leak. Now, I hate those retrofit ball valve caps. Like I'd rather just replace ball valves. Those those retrofit ball valve caps always leak. As soon as the rack shuts off, they start pissing refrigerant. Power it's, outage, pissing refrigerant. See, I've seen it. I've seen it both ways. So I, I'm because it has like basically three seals, right? You have the two rubbers that you know are on the shaft, where the retrofit portion goes into the new ball valve cap, and then you have the Teflon at the bottom. And then I usually, I, I like putting a little Loctite 515 on there, which is a gasket eliminator. So it doesn't, it doesn't rock hard like a, uh, like a conventional like leak lock, which I despise. I think anyone that uses that shouldn't use it because it ends up causing me to strip things out and I don't, I just don't dig it. Yeah, no. So those retrofit ball valve caps and I don't know. They seem like when they cool down, especially if they're on discharge lines or if they're on like a drop leg, as soon as they cool off, they start leaking like a sieve. So me personally, I'd rather just change the damn ball valve out. Then we don't got to deal with the ball valve bleeding through. We don't got to deal with it leaking later. I'd rather just change the ball valve. So all the high side ball valves, I would like to get changed out. Gotcha. And, and have you seen anything... Do you recommend also changing out the suction? Have you seen it leaking out through there? Because I, I, I've seen the same. If they're shot, they're getting changed. If they're old, if they're four bolts, if they're crappy, cruddy looking, they're getting changed. But like most of the time, I don't see suction ball valves leak. I've seen 20-year-old ball valves 
thirty year old ball valves not leak. Did did you? So the, the, those ball valves, like, are you the one that's doing the actual walkthrough where you're taking the count or are you relying on someone else to do the walkthrough? No, I'm, I'm taking the count. Okay. So that, that's one thing you guys have to remember, right? So it, what Kevin's doing is a lot different, but typically when you're doing a gas conversion, you're not the one who actually walked the store, right? So a lot of times you're like, well, it didn't change the ball valves. So th there has to be some communication made if you're, if you're already seeing them leaking out this leaking bat leaking at all. You need to make that that call to a manager and be like, hey, listen, we have to do something different because it's going to be a bitch trying to pull a vacuum in, in, in the later date, right? Well, yeah, everything, pulling pull a vacuum, dealing with other stuff. It, I'd rather just change the high side ball valves out. Like the, the suction ball valves, they get neglected a lot of times because let's be honest, it's probably going to cost double to change the suction ball valves. They're twice the size and they're always a bitch, especially if they're EPRs above them, you're talking a lot more cost. And you're still changing out all the gaskets on like the holdback a A9? No. So the last, last two, uh, the la the last two jobs I walked, they didn't want any paper gaskets changed out. So no nothing paper is getting changed out. They're, they're doing less with these, with these 448 to 507 retrofits than they are the R22s. So if it's got paper gaskets, it's not getting touched. Like discharge check valves are not touching them. I'm I'm changing I am I'm rebuilding the discharge check valves and drop like check valves with their four bolts. It's not on the scope, but it makes my life a lot easier and it's one less leak potential. So that's one thing I'm I'm focusing on. Shoot, there it was. You're muted. So you're not changing any of the the any of the gaskets and any of the EPRs, sort valves, anything like that. You're just letting that ride. Correct. Nothing gets touched on any of the EPRs. Gotcha. So I, I hardly ever see sort valves leak, even on the R22 to to five or R22 to like 448. Like I've, you hardly ever see EPR leaks. They're generally liquid ball valves and discharge ball valves. So any anything when you're doing these retrofits, it's going to be a pain for a service guy to change. Generally, we're hitting. Because, <laughs> you know, it's going to leak up later. I really don't want to deal with that, but yeah. I'm sorry, I kept muting myself because my, my air conditioning in here is loud. It sounds like a jet engine. Yeah, so anything, it's going to be like hard... I mean, to change. So like anything, anything is going to be like difficult. Like we're, we already got like, there's two guys on site that could pull a valve out. If it's a three inch valve, a two and an eighth valve in a bad spot where there's already two fitters there with the rig torches, it's going to be a lot easier. So we just need, that, that, that's my philosophy with it. If it's, if it's going to be a bitch to change out later on, you might as well just do it now. Why you already got guys up there that are pipe fitters, but then start going through the oil system. Okay, now's the time to upgrade oil separators. You'll switch to a, or a, a undersized centrifugal or a temp or a filtered separator. So getting that filtered separator in there is going to help you a lot. Your oil should not really be that bad. You're going from 404 or 507. You have gas that, you know, is a fairly well, good low temp refrigerant. It's already POE oil. I mean, you shouldn't have the the dirty aspect of you do of the from going from 22 to one of these gases. Not just that, but you have more BTUs per pound versus 448 and 449 versus 404 and 507, right? Because typically even the nozzles and stuff are a lot bigger on on 404 systems because there's less BTUs per pound so you need more refrigerant in order to do the same amount of work sometimes what you can see once this thing is started up with the 448 and 449 a lot of times in some evaporators depending on how big the nozzle is you could potentially see lazy liquid feed where it basically just comes comes out of the distributor but then like falls the path of least resistance doesn't really get sorry doesn't doesn't get spread evenly out 
and then essentially causes what I refer to as lazy liquid feed, where you'll end up seeing the valve will clamp down because it's getting a lot of copious amounts of flow from the from the bottom passes. But then towards the top, you don't have an even frost pattern. So you could literally draw a diagonal from the top pass all the way down to the end where it comes out the suction. Like you'll see that that portion of the coil is not actually getting the same superheat as what the bottom is. And, and I know we talked about this before, but uh, Kevin, we talked about putting a suction temperature sensor on each pass to actually see if you have even superheat, if you do suspect that from happening, if you do see it out there. Yeah, yeah. The the You should not really going to have the dirty aspect. I take every chance I can to clean this up when we're doing it. So, like, we're going to do an oil change. It's not like a R22 store with... with mineral oil where we're going to have to do multiple oil changes it's generally it's just one oil change you you're just you're just getting the oil freshened up with the new gas so what i will generally do is i'll just do a quick oil change each compressor i'll drain it down i'll pump the compressor out i'll clean the oil strainers and i will clean the oil strainers clean the centronic switch i will make sure that everything in the compressor is flushed out i'll clean the screen in the compressor clean the float, make sure it's all clean, get all the trash out of the bottom of the compressor, get it all nice and ready to go for this refrigerant that's going in there. Now, once it started back up, I'll fill it up with some fresh POE oil. I'll get the reservoir filled up with fresh POE oil, get that get that thing flushed out, change the oil filters before the changeover, let it run while we're doing the ball valves and everything else. And then in that, that same time, we're taking that and we're generally, most of these, these stores have been converting all the pressure controls from ones with capillary tubes on them, armor cap tubes to encapsulated. So just most, trying to re- reduce the amount of leak leak potential that you have. Correct. They're, they're wanting to get rid of the cap tubes to get rid of leak potential. All right. So you have a customer that's actually specking that out. So you'll have, you'll have those rules before you go to spec the job. So you know what to expect, right? Correct. You're going to have all those, what they're going to expect. But if you're doing leak reduction stuff and you're like, you're trying to walk a customer, you know, site and they leave it up to you installing those, those encapsulated controls. That's a, that's the easy way to do leak reduction. Cap tubes leaking, flares leaking. That's all one more thing to leak. So getting rid of it and just getting, putting it on the compressor and making sure that there's like no T's on there, nothing that's going to crack. So that's, that's one thing. But it all depends on what the customer wants, what, what their expectations are with that. Now, as we're moving on, as we're doing this gas changeover, we're, we're getting all the ball valves put in first. We're getting the compressors taken care of, getting the oil cleaned up. And then we're, I don't know, something just giant just fell. I'm just assuming my daughter threw something down the stairs. <laughs> well, as you're doing this, you're you're getting everything cleaned up, and then I leave the store side to the end. So you got Schraders to do. You do not have to do Schraders on everybody's spec. It's been if they're leaking or not. Me personally, I do the Schraders, especially all the Schraders in the rack. It's cheap insurance. It doesn't take that long. You could have two apprentices knock out a rack or two a day. Just go through a core pullers and just change all the Schraders. Put caps on, paint them blue. So that way, you know that that cap's been changed and everything's good. Generally, I will Ziploc baggy everything and I will tie it to whatever it's on. So if it's a EPR to get rebuilt, Ziploc baggy with the old parts to it. Same thing if it's like a, a whole back valve that got rebuilt, Ziploc baggy with the parts to it. So that way, like if you got a bunch of guys on site, we could look at it and you, that valve's been rebuilt and you could see who rebuilt it. I generally will make people initial initial it so if they fucked up i know who fucked up so i mean that, that's one thing but as you're going through this you're going to see like the biggest thing and if a customer doesn't have it in their scope you need to push it is changing all the power heads because in the beginning i think it was target was doing this they were just leaving the power heads yeah and then basically like they thought by throttling it down you were going to be able to to do uh, to settle it but the problem was is because i've seen this happen firsthand where like the superheat will swing from two all the way up to like 18 and you can actually see the swing in the actual uh, in the discharge air temperature like that's how severe it is and yeah so 
change them out and and actually now like i know they used to be able, they used to do 448 449 i'm sorry r22 powerheads but now they actually have a powerhead i think the charge is a d charge for what for 440 for hfos for 448 and 449 really i was yeah, told yeah. I, th- I was told it was the same as the vc charge they were just changing it I'll tell you in one second, but I'm like 99.9% positive. Go ahead. Continue. Sorry. So getting the powerheads done is like key. Like I, I've, I've been a part of having to set super eats afterwards and it sucks ass having to have the 404 powerheads on there. It's just, it hunts all over the place. It doesn't maintain superheat Well, lots of flood back, lots of problems. So you're going to want to avoid that. So doing the powerheads. Now, this is where it gets tricky because if you do the powerheads before, you got to open the valves up. Okay, you have to open the valves up because you're gonna have those. You're gonna have 448 suction pressure in there, or I'm sorry, 507 or 404 suction pressure, and there's a closing force, and you're gonna have an opening force that's way less on that R22 bulb. So you're going to have to open the valves up to maintain the case temperatures and superheat. So generally it's like a turn and a half, two turns. Now, when you go to do this gas changeover, you got to shut those valves back down because you're going to be wide open because that valve porting is, is sized for 404, which needs way more mass flow. 448 does not. So you're going to have that problem. So I generally, the, the way we've been doing them is we do the powerheads before. Some customers want it done the night of. That is way too damn stressful for me, and it is, causes way too much time. If you got to change 100-plus powerheads, that is a lot of time. By the time you get a vacuum rolling, you're talking like five, six hours. Even, even even if you got a couple of guys, it's still because at that point you still have product in every single case, right? Now you're and, bottoms of the cases, and it's just you're not going to get it done in two and a half hours, which is when the product's going to be done. It's it's not going to happen. I don't care if you had fifteen guys there; you couldn't manage it. You couldn't efficient efficiently manage it. Even if there was two guys per per lineup doing them, you still if you wound up with Hussman cases, I mean, you got one every four foot. That's a shit ton of powerheads. Yeah, you're talking 100 plus powerheads. So I, I have a question for you. So what do you recommend? Because I've heard I've heard it both ways. Do you, if you have Husman coils that obviously have non-adjustable expansion valves, do you get the retrofit kit to make those adjustable? Oh, cut them out, Q bodies. Uh, that's what I was just about to ask you. What is, what is your preference? Q bodies with uh, Q bodies with strainers. I'm not even going to waste the time. They're getting cut out. But by the time you you unscrew the bottom and you put the adjustment stem on there, the thing's been running for 10 years with, with a strainer that's half plugged. It's already warm. It's already warm. So screw it. It's getting Q-bodies. And by the time you go through and waste the time with that, you could have already – a fitter could have already burned in three of them. By the time you go through and do – and then say one leaks, you got to pump it back down. I would rather just cut the dryer out of the case – hard pipe the dryer and leave the strainers in there because I'd much rather clean a strainer than cut a dryer out. hundred percent. I, I never understood that. Like I understand like a dryer is made for moisture removal um, and also filtering, but why do you put a filter before a filter? I don't understand that. Like at the rack? No, I'm talking about like, why, why do you put a filter dryer? before the TXV, if the TXV has a strainer. I don't know. I hate it. Well, and so do I. That's what, that's what I'm trying to understand. I don't understand why they even remotely do that. I don't know. I, I Here's my thought process on it. All the OEMs do it. Like Zero Zone throws a, strain, a dryer in their case. Husband throws a dryer in their case. Hill Phoenix throws a dryer in their case. Let's just be honest. 90% of guys don't purge. There's really shitty install practices going on. What do you mean? 
there's shit service practices going on. So uh, what are all these manufacturers trying to do? They're trying to keep that warranty call from coming in from that valve, not feeding and getting misdiagnosed and the warranty for that valve. That's all they care about. They just care about that, that warranty not coming back for that valve or that, that case having an issue. That's it. You know what I haven't seen for a very long time, a, a expansion valve that's legitimately just frozen up because of moisture in the system. We have a store. Actually, it's getting shut down today. What? Yeah. yeah that's one of those Walmart stores. I got shut down. Gotcha. It, it, it had a moisture problem, like really, really bad underground piping had a small leak and it had a habit of burning out the suction transducer. So the home office would force it on and it would run and it would run into a vacuum and it would suck water. And then you would spend all this time getting the moisture out with dryers and then you would just get random service calls. It was awesome. Like I'm getting this free overtime because you just go there and just dump a bucket of water on the valve and it would just take off. You're muted. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, that's the only store I've ever seen moisture in a valve freeze it up. And it was a sand, sand wow case or sand wow or sanyo. Sanyo. Yeah, San, San, I think San, San was the valves, right? Those are the, those are the the valve manufacturers that Kaiser uses. San, yeah, San Yo cases. They're almost. They look almost. I think they have a back wall coil. Some TVs. I think so. I want a TV in my fridge. I don't think they they don't make refrigerated cases anymore. I know that. Because I, I, Panasonic technically does, right? Well, I'm I'm Panasonic owns Huspin. So technically they do. I guess. <laughs> Wait a minute. I- I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> About what? Uh, San- we we San got so- Today's episode is sponsored by the Refra Shield RDP series differential pressure monitors from Westermeyer Industries, now available for transcritical CO2 systems in addition to other common pressures and refrigerants. When the filter element of your coalescing oil separator is contaminated, it can hurt your system's performance and efficiency. But how do you know when it's time to replace that filter? Wait too long to replace, and you could end up with a nasty filter blowout. But replacing too often can be a waste of time and money. The answer is installing a differential pressure monitor. The RDP series differential pressure monitors, including the new transcritical CO2 model, are available now from Westermeyer Industries. To find out more information, email sales at westermeyerin.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R-I-N com. Oh, we got, we got so far off track. <laughs> Damn you. Oh, now back to the retrofits. So getting the power heads, like you want to get them done before. I'm a big proponent of doing them before. It's it's too stressful having that many people mess with that many power heads. You're just asking for a leak, and you're pulling vacuums. Let's be honest, you're not you're not getting down to 500 a retrofit. Like it, you don't have time for that. I mean, unless they're pulling all the food, you're gonna want to just get that thing. I, me, the night of the retrofit, I don't want to do anything besides pull the gas out, slam new liquid cores in there, and pull a vacuum, and then recharge. It. That's it. I'm not doing anything else unless we have some ball valve that like we astronomically can't change, but like we're doing condenser ball valves before we're doing all the ball valves before, because we could pump this thing down as many times as we want do two hour stents and just knock it out. I don't want to do anything the night of the retrofit. I don't want this 2 AM scramble panic attack. Like that, that's, that's not good. So in your instances, do you always use dry ice? Yeah. I mean, it depends. Okay. No, I was just curious because some some people will try to cheat the system. I've I've had a lot of luck just with service pump downs where like basically you take a conventional rack, open up the EPRs 100%, put on the compressors 100%, let those coils get as cold and as frosty as humanly possible just to give you a little bit more longevity with the product as well as you have some ice on the coil, which makes your pump down a hell of a longer. Doing that and putting dry ice in the cases, I've actually had 
a rack down for I think six and a half hours, and and temps just finally started finally hitting their alarm set point. Yeah, so, it really depends. You could, I'll usually come in an hour before and do exactly that. I'll drive all the temps down and get everything rolling. Get a little, little bit long, longer out of out of your shutdown time, right? So you're not having to beat the clock, so to speak. I don't give a shit what anybody says. That food is warm, no matter what. <laughs> no yes it is yes it is it's not it is too <laughs> whatever whatever magic they, they're saying that food is warm unless you're at like a costco or something where they have like redundancy and they they literally pull all the cases so if you're doing a rack they pull all the cases on anything that's on a rack they pull all the walk-ins have another rack in there so it's running at 50 percent same thing, you go do the next rack. It's running at 50%. They pull all the cases on that, move it into the walk-ins. So those are less stressful because you have the time. Plus, you have a big-ass box that you can throw a bunch of shit in, too. Well, yeah. If so, many P- so many POSs that you can just basically fill up, right? Well, yeah, and like those box stores, even like Sam's, everything's in boxes. It's a lot easier for them to pull the cases than it is for like an entire store to take everything out of the cases and out of the pushers and everything else. There's no pushers. They're all in cardboard boxes. They cut in half. So it's a lot easier, but you also have a lot more gas to deal with. Very true. Getting the power heads done before I'm a big proponent of getting the power heads done before and then going back and setting super eats. Like usually what we'll do is somebody will do the change overnight and I'll usually come in the next, I'll let one of my guys do it at night and I'll come in the next morning. And I will start rip, running through superheats. I'll usually get there like four in the morning. Those guys should be charged and running. I'm taking over. I get the rack smoothed out and then with a good charge in it. And then I'm going to start going to set superheats. I can do probably an, an island an hour or a, a row of cases an hour. Sometimes more. I'm doing like 10, 12 valves at the same time. So I'll run through these fast. <clears throat> so I'm not really worried about having to go through. But like generally the night of the changeover while it's pulling a vacuum, I'll have those guys go in there and then run all the valves back in two turns. So that way we're not flooding out when they start putting all those refrigerant in there. So the next big thing before you do the changeover is you need to check with the compressor manufacturer to make sure a, you're going to have enough horsepower and capacity, which you should B you're going to need liquid injection. So whether it's Carlisle compressors getting Y1037 valves, Bitzer compressors are getting BMTs installed or Y1037 valves. Copeland compressors are getting demand cooling installed. You need to check and see what you need. Okay. You need to look at if you're going to be in that design where you're going to need the demand cooling. So you're going to need that. So you're going to need to install liquid header. You're going to need to install or liquid stop valves. You need them. With Carlisle or Bitzer, whenever the compressor's on, the liquid stop valve needs to be on, however it's set up. If you're using like the BMT, which is Bitzer's version of demand cooling, you don't need the liquid stop valve. It is a pulse valve type liquid stop valve. So you're going to have that. But you're going to need some some sort of liquid injection for this compressor. You're going to need it. So you're going to have to order all those specific parts. So you're going to have to figure out for every single compressor. Like today, I had to go through, I had like seven different types of bits or compressors. I had to go through an order. It's a different kit for every single compressor. So you got to- Are you talking about the actual pulse pulsing one or doing the 1037? The pulsing one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because like all that all that sizing shit is based off of a couple different factors. Typically, it's sized off the horsepower of the compressor, the suction. Or I'm sorry, the saturated suction temperature, as well as the suction returning temperature. And I once again, I know we've talked about this. Where I've had an instance where the engineers designed it for a 35 degree superheat coming back to the compressors, and they were only like a third ton valve. But with the way the suction was running in a certain store. I had like 55 degrees of superheat. So in turn, I needed a bigger valve. So you, you have to be mindful when you're when you're sizing those up to make sure that you're doing it correctly. Generally, with the from what I've seen for most supermarket applications, 
a third ton valve for the Y10 is usually pretty good. But like you said, you got to check. But like generally on anything smaller than like a 15 horse, which is generally what we see, it seems to be a third ton valve is, is, is sufficient. I like to go with the 190s though. I I don't go with the 210s or like the 240s. I go with the 190s. They're going to inject more and it's going to inject more, but it's going to cool the discharge temps down. And I'd rather not cook the oil. So I think it's a, it's a trade-off there. So I, I, I'm going to go with that. But you need to have this done before. And then the next thing is head cooling fans. You're generally going to have to have head cooling fans. So you need to look at every compressor envelope. Like all these ones I've looked at, you know, whether they're Copeland, Bits, or, or Carlisle, they were all in that, that range where they needed a head cooling fan. And to be honest, if I'm going from, if, if, it's, if it's low temp, if I'm going from 404 or 507 to low temp, 448, 449, it's getting a head cooling fan. I don't care if the OEM is a requirement, it's getting a head cooling fan. So why not? Head cooling fans are cheap. It's cheap insurance. It keeps the compressor cool. I'd rather not cook the oil. But generally, you're going to need head cooling fans. You don't need them on medium temp, but on low temp, you're going to need head cooling fans. You anything you want to add to that? No. Oh, I, yeah, I do. When you're talking about the Y1037 valves or even the, if you have a temperature sensor on the discharge line, basically checking your your discharge temperature if they're not doing enough internal temperature. If you do not have that sensor wrapped, you will think that you have a bad 1037 valve because I've done it. And I never did it again. I like I, the I installed these valves at a store. We were ripping out the scrolls, Copelands, and putting in bitsers because that's just what the customer wanted. I sized these valves up, and I was like, "Well, what did I do? Did I mess it up?" And and I and I did not read all of the directions. I read most of them, and 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 it says wrap the sensor. And I'm like, "No, there's no way that that head cooling fan is moving that much air away." Yeah, bullshit. Oh, yeah. No, it did. That that bit me in the ass too one time. <laughs> <laughs> these things are all fucked up every one of them <laughs> i pulled out one twice um the straight because then those have they don't have a, they don't have a secondary you don't have a like an external serviceable strainer right they just have the the inline one so i fucking i i re-insulated it pulled it unbrazed it back out and i'm looking i'm like there's nothing in there and i shoved it back in and okay and i did it again and all of a sudden wasn't feeding again i'm like what the hell i was really close to pulling it out again and i was and then i realized i didn't have the bulb wrapped and i was that's when i was thinking to myself no there's no way that that's going to cause it no no it will it will it moves a shit ton of air away from away from that compressor so make sure you have everything wrapped insulated yeah and strapped properly with either like a txv bulb strap or i'll even go for a, a hose clamp just don't crush the bitch TXV ball strap work good. I have been using stainless zip ties. They I bought a stainless zip tie gun on Amazon and stainless. I've been using those to tie sensors onto stuff. Works out real nice. Not a fan of hose clamps because they come loose and they they rub. Because of the vibration. Because the vibration causes the screw to loosen up and it rubs. I've had to fix two leaks now, and. The fucking hose clamp rubbed through because they used a stainless hose clamp, which is the nice hose clamp, but stainless versus copper, copper's going first. So if you use a shitty like aluminum hose clamp, the aluminum's gonna go before the copper. But if you're gonna test these Y10 valves too, like Brett said, heat gun works pretty good. So if you're gonna test them, like to see, make sure they feed. You're not going to be obviously be able to see what temp they feed without it being on the line of the compressor. But if you want to test them to see if they do feed, heat gun. Just heat them up with a heat gun and grab the outlet, make sure it's feeding. These bits are BMT modules. I'll give you guys some uh, how you want to do it. I don't really know. They're kind of a pain to mount because they're made to be panel mounted. So in a retrofit application, they're kind of a nightmare. I was looking at it today. And anywhere I put it inside this rack panel and the door, it's going to close against the board or a breaker or because they're, they're like five and a half inches long. 
Is, is it like comparable to the size of like a replaceable dick cell controller like one of the universals like that that um, long it's about it's wider and longer it's like five oh. inches long out the back so it becomes a problem panel mounting these if if you're if they're doing it from the oem like it's fine because they, they put them all in a row and they leave a spot there but when you're retrofitting this it becomes a problem because you got to drill a two and a half inch hole in the panel that's what they want for like you to fit this in there and there's this front plate that goes across it so it's massive so you need so you got to put four of them in you need like almost a foot and a half of space and then you have to deal with is it going to close so before you start drilling holes in the panel take this from experience make sure the panel's going to close and you aren't going <laughs> to anything because you look at the depth you're like oh yeah it'll be fine it's it's plenty deep enough but then you're like, shit it's hitting a breaker or it, it now it's hitting the back of a board or you're being like in my case somebody put one in and uh, shut up a door and the wire just arced to the board lame so well that's there there so i know like on the, the new compressors like you can you can get a bits of compressor that has like digital unloading as well as that same module because it has pressure transducers and temperature sensors all all hooked up to it except for it it's the se sei module i think that the, basically does everything for that compressor they're not they didn't go to that yet so it's a cme module i think cme um, okay those things are the cat's ass you have so just so you're aware in order to hook up to it and program it you need the bits are very very speed adapter kit which lets you talk to the what it's bluetooth what yeah it's bluetooth you do have your phone the new ones are yeah some bitch so they're i've only seen them on digitals i have never seen them on anything but a digital i think they're kind of just saving that for right now until they get enough of them but it does everything it does your head cooling fan control it does your liquid injection it does everything so you basically you know pipe it in easy wire it it's all all the safeties are there no i was gonna say there's also pressure transducers on there right? and i forget what they're for i think uh oh oh for the for the digital unloading so i can modulate that based off the suction pressure so you could actually have it on like a single system and and digitally control that compressor i don't know if it can do that. I'm sure. Yes. No, it, it, it can. It can. Cause I, I just remembered I, at the thing in Cali, I, I went to one of the bits or classes cause I wanted to, I just wanted to know more. And they were, they were talking about it. Cause the guy was saying, Oh yeah, there's probably, you can put a pressure transducers on there. And I'm like, well, what for? Because it, you know, typically you're sending it just a signal from the BMS systems. But in this instance, you, you can put a pressure transducer on the suction and on the discharge and, and basically cut it off if it's too high. Um, it can shut it off in case like the compression ratio gets too crazy. So there's a lot of like cool little nuances that you can do with that controller. Yeah, I've never seen it with the pressure transducers. I always just see them in the bare bones with the digital unloading. But when you get those out, like if you come out and they're on a startup, you need to program them. They're not pre-programmed. The OEMs, is, I've never seen one program one yet. So just be aware of that, it's super easy. You just got to tell it how many unloaders it has, but that's part of these retrofits. Like I'm trying to add the digital compressors in. Like I always sell that as an upcharge. So I'm trying to get the customer to do it because you're going to have capacity issues. So why not just do it when it's cheap and do the, that's the thing I like about the bitters is they'll let you unload both heads on a Copeland. You can't do that because of the way the oil, the oil set up from the oil pump, the passages. That's one advantage you get with that. Like you can unload both heads. Variable speed is obviously king now, but the digital unloading, that CME module is loads better than their old digital, the Bitzer's old digital unloading, which was like super laggy. Well, that was, that. Well, are you talking about the, the module that was the Siemens module that basically took the analog output signal? Is that the one you're talking about? It yeah, came. Which would, it would unload it like 10 volts and, sort of unload at five volts and kind of yeah but the problem the, the problem that we had is, is a lot of times the card the card that's in there would would come out yes so that's one, one of the problems right and then it wouldn't it wouldn't work it would go red and then you'd have to basically unplug the card put it back in but and then power cycle it to get it to get it to work so that's one of the things they've now fixed that down to like a 
like an actual SD card rather than the little plug thing. So you have to make sure whenever you're replacing uh, that module that whatever compressor that that module was intended for, that it's the module that you are. Because like if you put in like a a, a fucking three or uh, a four cylinder compressor versus like a six, it's going to want to pulse differently. Yeah, was not. It was definitely something to compete with. It was it it was not a com- competition for the IDCM. Like this, those it worked. It, it worked. It's like that that onloader that lasted for like six weeks. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> You're such a dick. <laughs> so everyone here's you know me poke a little fun, but what Kevin does says shit and whatever else. And then I have to edit it later. Brent has to edit it out. <laughs> Just letting you know, sometimes I'm tired when I'm editing. So oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be the first time I got a phone call. It's most of my set of the podcast. <laughs> it definitely won't be the last. So, Dick. So any, anything like that, guys, you're trying to add on to these retrofits. If you're going to do these, if you're trying to upsell a digital compressor, I mean, it's going to make it go so much smoother. But regardless, that doesn't need to be done for the retrofit. Just doing the gas change over itself and following what we, we laid out here, getting the liquid injection put in, getting ball valves that look like they're leaking or are going to leak changed out, solenoid valves that are leaking changed out. You don't have to change them, but if they're leaking – get them out of there and get them rebuilt and then just going through everything and make sure if you if you're finding hoses that are leaking just get rid of them big proponent i am no longer using the armored cap tubes i switched over to reflex hoses wait what since yeah. when Re- I, which, which one of the reflex hoses the the they're like the gray hoses like hill's been sending out and stuff really so those reflex hoses you could buy a kit and make your own hoses. Come on. It's a crimper. It's super simple. It's a crimper, and you could buy whatever you want. You could buy three-eighths hoses, half-inch hoses, quarter-inch hoses. What is it? Like, whatever that – I think it's DN2 hoses, which is what, what all the – Is it like a mechanical f- fit? It, no, because you're saying crimping. So is there rubber gaskets involved? No. So it's, it's, it's basically making a hydraulic hose, but – like you're crimping it yourself. You put the end on it. Like it's there's they're solid. They're pretty hard to fuck up. No, I'm I'm, I'm cool with that. I just I thought you were gonna say it's it's some kind of rubber gasket type thing. Okay. But they're crimped hoses. Like they're that they, that's what Costco specs now. So they they spec you can only use reflex hoses. So there, there's there it what's nice about them is you can make custom hoses. So if you need a if you need a 48 inch hose you're not link putting cap tubes together or, or something like that. You're just building whatever hose you need and cutting it and putting the ends on and crimping it. If you need two straights, you can make two straights. If you need two nineties, you can make two nineties. If you need one side to be three eighths and one side to be quarter, you could do that. So you can make your own custom hoses. And once you buy the kit, it's not expensive. You're making hoses for a lot less than everything else is. How much is the kit? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't it's not that expensive. I'm not sure how much it is. It's not that. It's not my money. <laughs> it, it gets billed to a job. I, I know it's cheaper than buying like a an entire like thirty pack of armored cap tubes. What did you What did you call that again? It's reflex hoses. R e no. Don't ask me to spell things. No, I'm just gonna do it just to be a dick. Reflex <laughs> math. You're such an asshole. <laughs> Can you spell that, please? Yeah, the, the other, I'll, I'll send you the link for them later. Oh, but like, okay. oh, oh, I think I think it's yeah, it's it's reflex with two Fs. Yeah, they're really nice. Like you can get color coded ones. Yeah, I see that. As as Kevin would say, it's the cat's ass. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. I know it's all right. You get over it. I'm just getting even with me having to do more editing. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Let's say something else, but I refrain from it.
All right, all right, all right, all right. All right, reflex hose is awesome. All right, max working pressure. Ooh, 80 bar. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I Honestly, I think every service van should have, have a kit with those on it. Dude, the burst pressure for, I don't know what the, the difference between the DN5 and the DN2 is, but it's 700 bar and 500 bar. Holy freaking poop. Yeah, I me personally, I think every service truck should have one of these kits on it. A hundred I mean, degrees Celsius, Kev. Yeah. So you can use this on discharge, discharge and 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 and, and suction in because it's rated all the way down to negative forty degrees Celsius. I I I me personally, I think this should be on every service truck. Because okay, you gotta get armor cap tubes, you gotta get a cap tube. You can make whatever hose you want with this. Your hose. I mean, well, it's a small initial investment. Then you're not buying armored cap tubes because those things suck. Well, then you don't, you don't really have to worry about having to, having to caulk it up and stuff, right? Because then need that shit. What? When they when they're caulking up armored cap tubes, I'm, like I'm just saying, like, then you don't have that extra length. You can figure out essentially what what the correct length is going to be. That's really cool. I didn't I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 super simple to make. Even have one at the shop, and if you had to make make them up and send them back out the next day, if you're making custom hoses, especially if you're doing a lot of gas changeovers, that's mm-hmm. how you make money right there. So tell you tell your service manager that that Kevin told you that, that you have to have it, right? Yeah, it goes on a job. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, guys, I mean, doing a four forty eight to to four hundred four. I'm sorry, four hundred four five hundred seven to four forty eight. It's no different than doing a normal retrofit, just with less leaks. You're going to have to change less stuff, but you're not going to have that R22 leaks. You're not going to have that mineral oil problems. So you're just going to have a lot more. Make sure the superheats are set on the cases. Make sure you're not flooding out. More of a problem with flooding out than anything. Making sure you're not overfeeding on stuff. Making sure you got enough oil in there. You're not washing out the rack. So... That's that's the biggest thing, but just doing that that preliminary work and making sure that everything is scoped out and going to doing the retrofit is no different than doing the actual R22 retrofit. Same guidelines, just you're gonna have a little bit less work. So we're gonna wrap it up for tonight. Cool. All right, guys. Well, listen. Thanks for listening again, and have a great night.